Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. Joining me as my guest for this episode is Sue Terry. Sue is an academic of weird and occult literature. Her research interests involve her exploring the relationship between the occult and literary fiction and understanding how texts of all kinds can help us interpret paranormal phenomena to develop a better appreciation of it. She is currently writing a book on fantasy author Alan Garner, as well as researching her PhD in feminist occult literary modernism at the University of Surrey, and it is these two areas which my conversation with her focuses on. Alan Garner's work is deeply connected to the landscape of Cheshire in northern England, where he grew up, and often features the emergence of mythic and fantastical events in the everyday world, sometimes in a subtle way, but not always. His fascination with the relativity of space and time is also prevalent, and means that his stories are full of high strangeness, with ancient evils, gateways to otherworldly realms, and the lasting effect of mythic betrayal and murder featuring prominently in some of his most beloved works, such as Elidor and The Owl Service. I begin the interview by talking with Sue about her research and her PhD thesis, after which we talk about Alan Garner, from his traumatic childhood, which may have ignited his imagination, onto some of his best-known works and the themes they explore. I have been a fan of his writing from an early age, and his books were very influential in encouraging my interest in the paranormal. It was a pleasure to talk with someone as knowledgeable as Sue about him and his work. Enjoy! Sue, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks so much, Rick. It's a joy to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. I thought it would be best to begin by talking a little bit about your own research, which on your website you describe as being interests in esoteric and magical fiction, which leads you to explore radical notions, hidden realities, the underground and counterculture at the intersection of literature and the occult. That all sounds really fascinating. Can you go into that in a little bit more detail? Yes, with uh, with pleasure. Well, I think that occultism has long been a culture that is counter to the mainstream, um, and this is where I'm taking in, taking inspiration and a deep dive into esoteric and magical fiction, specifically in my PhD research around the writings of women writers of the early 20th century, P.L. Travers, Sylvia Townsend Warner, Florence Farr, and Mary Butts. And the looking, I'm looking at ways in which the radical notions of women's empowerment and sort of feminist self-realization self uh, could be liberated for, through the use of esoteric practice and the ways in which they were able to explore other realities and the interrelationship with uh, the mainstream and, and establishment society. Um, I think there's a really rich stream seam in this intersection of literature and the occult insofar as it's, as I say, always been a, a kind of countercultural um, 
aspect of occultism. And that really helps us to take a different look at the way in which uh, society is evolving and how we are, are kind of adapting to the challenges of the 20th century, the new age uh, of, of this period, and now into the 21st century. Um, uh, the other worlds, the concept of, of the outside of what we see here, and how we um, enable kind of communications, if you will, with non-human intelligences through magic, through other forms of sort of spiritual practice and engagement with the landscape, engagement with um, other forms of uh, kind of non-straightforward society um, practices, as I say. Um, and I'm looking at the ways in which this uh, esoteric practice and literature came together for these women and paint a different kind of picture of um, women's liberation, if you will, but certainly empowerment in this period. And they still have so many resonances and reverberations today. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm also looking at... Uh, ways in which writers like P.L. Travers, for example, directly use their interests in this field to kind of influence and um, interest uh, children, the younger generation, through their work, which carries on this thread as an alternative or a kind of parallel cult if you will, to the to the mainstream society. So I'm having a lot of fun looking into these um, various uh, various kind of domains of occultism, literature, and the weird, and coming around to various um, paths of of, uh, of interest in terms of how we we create this understanding of new realities. And a lot of it was most certainly kicked off for me by my early um, engagement and enjoyment of, of the works of Alan Garner as a child. Um, and now I obviously have the, have the sort of joy of going deeper into these interests for myself. But Garner was very much my way in. And he introduced themes and ideas that I'm now exploring in my thesis, kind of from a different angle, if you will. Right. Okay. And just going back to those female authors uh, you, mm. you mentioned were part of your PhD, but P.L. Travers, she wrote Mary Poppins. I guess that's her most well-known work. And, yes. um, you know, I really only know the, the film, um, but, but Mary Poppins is, is an interesting entity, isn't it? When you, when you examine that story, um, her abilities, uh, the way she interacts with humans, I guess, is... Um, it's perhaps more otherworldly than you might first imagine. Oh, very much so. And of course, P.L. Travers was uh, a theosophist um, and a lot of the um, the ideas and the concepts she's introducing to uh, to the stories of, of Mary Poppins are originating in her theosophical kind of practice and understanding. So we do have quite a sort of... Um, kind of a hotline straight into the esoteric and the uncanny, even more so than um, we understand uh, Mary Poppins at its sort of first presentation, if you will. It's a really rich, uh, really rich um, story about Mary Poppins, and it tells us a great deal about how children can enter into this kind of world of, of make-believe world of fantasy, but also the world of an alternate reality. 
and to learn and understand that things aren't always as they seem to be and that establishment sort of lifestyle, as it were, or, or establishment rules don't always apply. It is okay to explore things for yourself and to discover different ways of understanding um, human life and aspirations and, and what we're all doing here. And Mary Poppins is a kind of um, intercept, inter, um, interdimensional creature, if you will, or, or being here. By, and she enables the children to experience a ser series of really exciting adventures in what we can see as different dimensions of reality. And the use of kind of paradox and confusion really upset our expectations uh, of what, what a you know, what, what an everyday sort of tea party may be or a walk in the park or uh, various other domestic settings. She shows us that there's a different way of, of sort of inter interpreting this and understanding it. Um, whilst in putting together a series of, of stories which are really humorous and, and obviously have stood, uh, ha have stood many generations of children very well. They've always been incredibly popular. Um, so uh, I think that Walt Disney did a, did a service insofar as introducing people to Mary Poppins on a wide, uh, you know, worldwide basis. But when you go back to the stories, there's even more richness and strangeness there than even the stories that we see on the film um, would, would lead us to believe. Right. Okay. And so, was P.L. Travers was she writing these stories as in a in a way to they were they were the best medium for her to get some of her ideas across as well as writing a, a good story i th i think so um certainly you know she uh identified the the power of sort of fairy tale and stories and folk tales and things from her her sort of uh, association with uh, george russell the poet ae in ireland and the the power that one can um put and gain from those uh, sort of very compressed stories and uh, you know they're like um you know, uh, concentrated, uh, concentrated little pieces of, of, of art that really are, go so deep into the sort of human psyche, if you will. And, and I think that the, the whole kind of um, understanding of children's stories and nursery stories and the ways in which one can play and have some fun as an author, as well as, um, you know, being kind of uh, show, showing different things, if you will. I mean, they're not exactly sort of strict didactic type of stories, but there is a great deal of, of, of richness in there. Mm. Uh, something I I really like about the power of uh, of a good story in a in a novel or, or wherever it is is that it takes you into a world and, it, and you don't have to sort of question everything, the decisions that characters make or. The, or the narrative, if, if it's a well-told story, um, and, and it seems like it uh, shows that the reality can be quite malleable. So, when in in a story like Mary Poppins or in the works of Alan Garner, which we'll discuss soon, quite fantastical things can happen. But within, but it, when it's contained within a world and then a narrative within that world, it's there's no point where you question it, like. Like he would if someone reported seeing something strange in "quote unquote" the real world. No, exactly. I mean, when you get 
you know carried along you, you enter into this uh, this this vision this this creative uh, worldview of the the writer and you don't have to question things i mean in the stories i'm looking at of mary poppins um, pl travers's work a lot of the stories are about inversion they're about literally being upside down uh, i mean there's a great story called laughing gas in which um, the the children the banks children mary poppins's charges you know she's a nanny of they go with her to see to meet one of her uncles mr wig and he he lives upside down and he it reads his birthday tea in reverse order for example you know which is the sort of thing children love oh let's start with the cake you know let's let's do that let's eat things in the in the way we wish to let's um kind of go another story they they're sort of hanging around at the ceiling and seeing everything upside down and inverting it and taking a different view of of you know what what they're seeing in front of them but this is kind of if you will to say that you don't have to do things in the normal way we can actually learn a different perspective we can uh, develop a different point of view by turning things around and looking at it from a different uh, a different angle um i think that you know this this really does allow children she speaks so well uh, so easily with uh, children she makes that connection so easily with these stories which are fantastic which are humorous but then she will also show the children themselves as to you know what might be wrong that they need to um, appreciate that, that humanity for example needs to um, needs to take care of uh, for, for example there's a there's a a really difficult story in um, Full Moon where they go to, they end up in uh, London Zoo where the, the there are babies in cages and old older people, grandparents and so on, are being looked at as if they were in a zoo by, by zoo animals from, um, you know, the, the normal kind of uh, interaction in the zoo. And, and the children there see this as an upside down world that's really horrifying and really unpleasant. And I think here that, you know, Travers is showing us that this, um, that this um, other this other way of, of seeing what we as humans do and how we really need, we have this responsibility for the environment. We have this responsibility to um, look after animals and to understand from their perspective what it is. How, how, do, you, how do you feel about being in a cage, for example? So there's, there is this real kind of, um, there's, a, there's a morality, but it's not a Christian morality, if you will, in these stories, which, um, goes directly to the kind of uh, the heart of the heart of children's understanding because you know um, it's resolved in the end by uh, Mary Poppins a bene benef beneficial uh, benevolent uh, appearance there uh, supporting the children and um, letting them to experience these things for themselves I mean they, they are really great fun um, I think one of the best things about this whole matter of reality and uh, expectation is really right at the beginning. And I think in the film, you see this very well as, as well, don't you? You'll remember the scene in the nursery where Mary Poppins arrives and she takes everything out of the, the, her carpet bag. Do you remember <laughs> that bit? Yeah. And, uh, you know, so when Michael, um, Michael Banks says to her, you know, what's this? Is it a car? What, what is this carpet bag is it for carrying carpets in and, and she says no no it's made of carpet and then she takes out of this empty bag 
um, she takes out her um, personal items. She takes an apron, some soap, a toothbrush. What else has she got? Oh, scent, bottle of scent, um, her hairpins. And then it gets even more brain boggling because she brings out a small folding armchair from this handbag and a folding camp bedstead with blanket and eider down complete which is a marvelous phrase I've never forgotten because she's sort of bending the reality and exploding it to say you know this is my ordinary handbag but look you can't believe your eyes what I've actually done with it and it's a kind of a, a, a paradoxical um, a paradoxical object that really challenges our understanding of rationality and, and the reliability of the human senses and you know the malleability as you say of, of time and space and so on um, it, it's a really affecting thing but it's funny as well it's funny as well and and obviously that's what uh, you know allows the children the children readers to to kind of remember it as, as such an arresting um an arresting image mm, no absolutely i was interested to know that another one of the authors your phd was about was sylvia townsend warner i i yeah. only really know of her and there's a book of hers that has been on my to read list for a long time called lolly willows because it sounds really interesting and a great story in, in terms of what you were talking about, your your PhD was about. How did that work for for her in terms of her interests in in the esoteric? Well, in with Sylvia Townsend Warner, she's a really uh, she is an interesting writer. At the time. Um, she was interested in witchcraft. I don't think we can say that she actually was a witch or a practicing um, witch, uh, witch of any description, although there are hints in various uh, diary entries of hers and um, allusions to her by other people in their memoirs and so on of her doing things like, you know, cooking up a spell in a teapot uh, or, or a frying pan, I think it was, uh, when she wanted uh, somebody to not get a job and, and um, things like that um and there are she's always said that she met um margaret murray and uh, in her in uh, sylvia townsend warner's diary she always says oh i, I i'd like to be a member of her coven I, and I, I think she has a coven and i'd like to be a member of it so there's all these kind of um she has interests in it and she does a lot of research into witchcraft at the time in, in the sort of 19 uh, 1920s and so on um uh, but she herself isn't a witch. But her figure of Lolly Willows is a fantastic um, literary creation because she's really dealing here with the woman who, in society, who really, even today, doesn't always get very much uh, attention. And certainly in the period that, that uh, Sylvia Townsend Warner was writing, really didn't, very overlooked. Because Lolly Willows, uh, or Laura Willows, is the unmarried spinster aunt um, who lives with her brother and uh, sis, her sister-in-law in a grand house in West London. Uh, she has been forced to give up her home in the country, the family home, Lady Place, because being um, a girl, she wasn't allowed to inherit it on the death of her father. So she becomes the sort of spare part um supernumerary uh, household member doing all the jobs for the family looking after children doing bits of mending socks and things that those sort of make work things that women in that position and that society were kind of schooled to see as their lot 
um, a kind of an unpaid, an unpaid uh, servant, basically, although obviously a, a, a family member. And anyway, Lolly Willows encapsulates that feeling of kind of being overlooked and rejected and being not recognized for her own wants and interests. And she decides that what she really wants to do is to become a village witch. And the story uh, is uh, about her self-realization as a village witch, uh, leaving London behind and finding a small um, a small cottage it, it, the, the, where she becomes a paying guest of a, a woman in a, in a, a, a small village in um, Oxfordshire in the Chilterns, where she then has a personal encounter with Satan who takes her, as it were, into his coven and recognises her as, as one of his own. He takes her into his, his sort of you know, fellowship, as it were, uh, because she discovers that every member of this small village community is indeed a witch, but they all are kind of, you know, very secret about it. And uh, the, the story itself is um, self-realisation self for this uh, this woman, uh, older woman, the spinster, the unregarded, the l overlooked. And it's a real sort of cry of, of liberation by um, Sylvia Townsend Warner for, for, this, uh, for this woman in the, the character of Lolly Willows, where she sort of, you know, at the end of the novel, gives this great long speech about how there are millions of women just like her. And one day they will all rise up and throw off their kind of repression and, and will become into their own. And, um, you know, men will be right to be, to be nervous of it, in, in all honesty. So, it's a story where we see that um, that the character of Satan is actually a liberating figure for for the for women, and it's really quite a transgressive, well, a very transgressive notion at the time that middle class respectable women are actually secret uh, adherents to Satanism of one description or another, um, and that more than that, there is this whole um, new life and independence and uh, free spirited nature that she can then have of her own through embracing this uh, transgressive lifestyle and moving into really the, what she wants to achieve for herself. It's, it's a really, it is a really interesting book. And um, as I say, one that um, speaks for those who in that culture, in that society at the time, and to a great extent, even today, really don't have very much of a voice uh, in order to express their own, uh, th their own desires. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. It's like you were saying at the beginning of our conversation, um, these sorts of subjects and, and interest in these subjects, I, I get the sense that it, it gave women of the time not so much a freedom, but a, an ability to express themselves. Yes, yes, I think so very much. I mean, in... Um... In sort of everyday or establishment society, these sort of uh, these sort of pursuits were were not the kind of thing that one would uh, talk about at, at sort of the dinner table, as it were. There was a great movement against, you know, the church was against it. This uh, uh, kind of, you know, the newspapers and all all of those kind of markers of uh, establishment society. But the the way in which esoteric practice 
practice and various kinds of magical or spiritual groups that emerged in the late 19th and into the 20th century really did give women an opportunity to come into their own, whether it was sort of spiritualism or theosophy, where in theosophy in particular, there was a great emphasis on women studying and learning and teaching and and becoming kind of really quite well educated in an era in the 19th century where women's education in Britain and and sort of Europe just wasn't, uh, wasn't something that was really a feature. They weren't allowed to go to university. They weren't allowed to to work in in professions and so forth, um, certainly in the earlier period. But these spiritual groups actually allowed women to express themselves. And of course, this is all completely counter to the very strict, very repressive uh, church, Christian church of the era, whether it be the Catholic Church or indeed um, the the established Church of England. Women were not allowed to take uh, a a part in it. I mean, when you think about it, it was only until, you know, quite late on in the the, the 20th century that the the whole nature, whole notion of women priests and so forth really became, uh, you know, a thing that that was... um, was enabled um so women didn't have any way of of kind of expressing themselves in that way in a formal setting and then when we look at the work of florence farr who was a writer and a um a a, an early feminist of the first wave she um she was a, a member of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, and in fact, she became the the, the premier, the, the 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 highest adept in in, in England. Uh, that was her position, um, and she was able to um, be a teacher as well as a, a highly kind of developed uh, spiritual and magical practitioner. Um, and through her work, you know, her, she was a writer of, of plays, a playwright, and she was an actress. She was able to kind of disseminate some of these ideas into a wider society. And again, the, like with Theosophy, the Golden Dawn and other lodges, uh, but specifically the Golden Dawn, because it was the only one that, uh, that admitted women on equal terms with men, uh, there was a high degree of, of education, of, of, of self-teaching, of lectures from the, uh, the, from the tutors within the, 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 the lodge, the group, um, and um, a, a real valorization um, of those who, who studied and, and were able to teach. And, and Florence Farr was, was in that category. She, um, she wrote many books of magical practice and translations of uh, hermetic texts from uh, you know, the, the Renaissance and uh, so forth. And um, she really did kind of embody this freedom through, um, through magic and through esoteric practice and her acknowledging of the importance for women of the confidence and the work in which she was doing um, as a result of basically you sort of applied occultism really Mm, yeah it's fascinating so moving on to alan garner and his work yes how did you first become aware of, of that and him Right. Well, I go back a long way with Alan Garner, <laughs> like a lot <laughs> of people. Um, I was introduced to his work through a teacher um, in about 1970. Uh, you know, we used to have 
class readings, didn't we, at the end of uh, school day and so on. And um, uh, the school I attended, I, I just moved down there from to Cheltenham from Yorkshire. And when I got there, they were, uh, they'd just finished the Weird Stone of Breeze in Garmin and um, were about to start the, the Moon of Gomrath. And I was introduced to this world that just took my breath away. I mean, what was I, nine and a half, something like that? And I was instantly captivated by this whole idea of these supernatural creatures coming into everyday life, the interaction with the children who seem to be really you know, playing a part uh, themselves and experiencing all this really weird stuff in a very, very exciting way. Uh, it was. It also helped a great deal. I have to say that the the main, <laughs> the heroine of the of the character was uh, of the book was also called Susan. So I thought, well, that's good. She's got to be worth. Uh, she's got to be worth investigating. Um, but the 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 sheer power of Garner's work and the the ideas and the uh, again, like with P.L. Travers, you know, the way in which a child could easily enter into his fictional uh, his fictional world and to make these uh, kind of interesting discoveries about the way life might be and the world could look through hearing the, the story of uh, the Moon of Gomrath in, in particular, as I say, where I, where I came in, as it were, and then reading The Weird Stone as well uh, for myself. It was really uh, something that affected and touched me quite deeply. Um, and I think that is the power of Ghana. You know, if you, if you get it at, at some early age, it will, it will stay with you for life. I've, I've met a lot of people who, who have had a very similar experience. Um, so hurrah for, you know, primary school uh, reading time, as it was story time, as it were, because that really introduced me to his work at that age. And then he's it really kind of became a bit of a constant for me. Um, reading each of the novels as they kind of came out uh, at the Owl Service, in particular Redshift, which is a real, um, you know, I really remember reading that with lack of understanding the first time, but, you know, over re-readings, all of Garner's books, you know, you get a different dimension, a different layer each time. Um, and then, you know, uh, later on discovering the others in his sort of more mature work, as El Elidor, I should say, of course, between um, uh, <coughs> uh, Gomrath and uh, the Owl Service. And, and that story in particular is one that um, really did have a lot of, of um, it had a great deal of, of resonance for me, almost the most strange that I had read at that time. Um, and also the one that most directly introduces the ideas of do you know what there's something even more weird about life than you think there is um you know using uh, he uses the the kind of language and imagery of spiritualism of various occult or occult adjacent shall we say practices in the books in all of his books you know he he treats uh he treats this material with complete kind of um openness there's no sort of there's no moralizing again we're you know in the same way as i was speaking earlier there's no kind of overlying sort of sense that you shouldn't be doing this you shouldn't be talking about you know grimoires 
magic circles, casting, evoking demons and so on, like in the Moon of Gomrath. There is just a fact that, you know, it, it's here, it works, this is what happens. And my goodness me, isn't it scary, frightening and, and exciting when it does? So these are really interesting ideas that set my imagination on fire. And again, I, I know that's something that a lot of people also um, also, you know, have that have that commonality of experience over. Um, <clears throat> so I'd say that of of all the many books that that I read at the time as a child, it is the Ghana ones that sort of stand out like particular jewels in the library, if you will. Yeah, I completely understand. Um, and I know that when he was a child, he was often quite ill and. There's yes. a. I, I watched a documentary where he talks a little bit about that, and he would often stare at the the ceiling and and yes. start to imagine worlds on the ceiling, and that's um that's quite a, a thing to happen to a to a small child. It almost sounds a little bit like a like an initiatory experience if you if you framed it differently, and 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 that alongside like his deep connection to where he grew up especially oldly edged they seem to be um a big part of why he wrote what he wrote absolutely yes completely agree um the the whole story of that that Garner has shared with us about his childhood illnesses. I mean, he was seriously, seriously ill. And I have heard him say that, you know, I died three times. He had diphtheria, he had meningitis, and he had pneumonia. And when we think back to the setting um, of that experience for Garner as a boy, he was born in 1934. So he was born at the same time as, you know, the, 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 the writers that I'm I'm talking about in my PhD were were active and, and writing. So there was a sort of in time there was this this overlap. And we kind of, you know, forget, I think, sometimes that um, you know, the, the life of a, a of a of a, a child in, in even the early 20th century, particularly one who was ill, wasn't the sort of experience that children today would have. For example, I mean, you know, if if you were very ill in those days you couldn't so easily get hold of a doctor or, or whatever. There was no NHS, you know, it was, it was very much kind of, you know, you did tend to um, stay in bed for long periods of time. And to a degree, there was an element of, of, uh, of sorting it out by itself and letting nature take its course. Uh, coincidentally my own father was born in the same year and um he used to tell me about living in in sort of rural wales and rural cornwall and so on and that was very much a a factor of life then if you did get ill then you know the long bed rest wasn't unusual so i think that the setting of um the setting of 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 this is very much um I, I I do think the idea of a kind of initiatory, the whole bit that he talks about, the dream world and entering into this kind of trance-like relationship with with his surroundings is really potent. And I'm seeing, you know, one sees a lot of it in the kind of, you know, occult 
literature and, and sort of esoteric practice in other circumstances. Obviously, you know, Garner is writing from his own personal perspective. Um, it is just interesting the way the, res the, the resonances and reverberations uh, cross over, I think. The fact when he speaks um, in of uh, this period in, in an essay of The Edge of the Ceiling, he talks very much about being um, able to have lucid dreams and and kind of control his dreams when he feels that he's going into a particularly um, unpleasant uh, kind of interaction with these figures that he meets. So if he says he's I'm having a nightmare and he can control his way out of it. Now, <clears throat> dream con control and lucid dreaming is a... Is, is a, a practice that is, you know, sort of shamanic on the one hand, and also in some magical um, traditions that that is very much part of it. But I love the way in which, you know, he he describes how he can sort of switch himself off almost, uh, or remove himself from 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 conscious uh, conscious interaction with his surroundings and let go uh, in order to sort of achieve this shift in reality. And the shift in perception of his surroundings that allow him to enter this kind of dream space or the way he describes it as a land where light is all round, but there's no sun, you know, and that the, the, the creatures he, he doesn't eat or drink in, in this land. He is speaking and he has mentioned this himself but when you first read or hear this story, you think, my goodness me, that is like an encounter with fairyland. Uh, we can go to many, um, many sort of uh, uh, fairy stories and, and um, folk tales and so forth, where that is a, you know, the beautiful land of fairy and there's no, there's beautiful light everywhere, but there's no visible sun. And yet Garner is describing this as a boy having experienced it directly for himself. And he is really kind of, it's more than I think just the kind of concept of an imaginary friend. He sort of enters into this imaginal world. He has imaginal friends. He, he enters into this almost like what we could say as a kind of, um, I say, a different reality, a sort of collective unconsciousness maybe. But he's using a variety of sort of the, the magical imagination we might encounter otherwise in the, in the stories of Travers and Co. perhaps. Um, there's also, he, he has become very interested in the whole notion of, of shamanism. And, of course, shamanism has, in some aspects, been linked with uh, various forms of, of illness, various forms of sort of uh, mental conditions and, and so on, which uh, people experience. Um, and I think it's all incredibly interesting because, yes, the experiences of him looking at the ceiling and entering into this world that he could suddenly see and perceive uh, with different um, uh, characters in it and, and people, he realised in that split, in that sort of split second almost of, of this achieving initiation, that it wasn't only about what he's seeing there, but it's about these games he plays with time and the notion of spirals of time. And he, he says things like, oh, I, I made time uh, spread out. It, I'd spread a second out to infinity and then I'd uh, split a second down into hours and uh, things like this. So he's, he's playing around with the notion of, of what he's feeling in order to kind of disassociate himself, I guess, from 
the unpleasant and painful reality that he's he's in, in in the illness but also traversing these really interesting aspects of other other realities which of course then feeds into his into his fictional work but i think this is one of the those instances of where fiction and literature and people's memoirs and reminiscences and so forth can really kind of direct our own attention to the fact that what we see around us isn't all that there is and even more than that as a child and I said that Garner reports that he died three times uh, and he you know he he was uh, he, he paints this picture of himself being looked at by doctors around his bed with his mother and I, I think he's got meningitis at this point and he says that the doctors are saying to his mother basically they're saying prepare yourself for the worst Mrs Garner um and he does he says well you know they didn't realize that actually I could hear I couldn't speak I couldn't move but I could hear everything and I just became incredibly angry and I thought I'm not going to I'm not going to because uh so he said I was too angry to die uh, which is marvelous <laughs> the sort of fighting spirit that brought him around but the other thing about all of that is that Garner realized that what he was experiencing was also about death. And the sort of, in a nutshell, those, um, those reminiscences and memories and those deep impressions of these uh, periods of sickness that he experienced seem, from what he said, to encapsulate the whole idea of initiation, of understanding that his life was going to begin in a different way and also that it was about death because he basically says well I've died I've seen what happens uh, and then he had this other in uh, he had this other image of a strange little wizened old lady character whom he saw and he knew that when he saw her like a kind of you know like a sort of character from fairyland or whatever and his encounter with her was so strange because he says that you know I knew that um, if I kept looking at her uh, I'd live but if I stopped you know she would she would she was my death kind of thing. And uh, these are really, really deep things for, a, for a, a child to kind of be wrestling with and to realize, um, you know, very, they are the subject and the fabric and uh, source really of, you know, us as humans, is, aren't, aren't they? You know, what, what is life about and death, what happens afterwards um, and enable Maybe maybe there's a sense of, of kind of liberation about that and freeing about it. Saying, well, I've been there, I've done that, I've come back and I've had a glimpse of what's to come. Uh, so, you know, and if you can be not so scared of it as a result, then um, it, it encapsulates that experience incredibly, incredibly well, I think. Uh, <clears throat> and as I say, a lot of this type of, this concept that I'm talking about, it's, mirrored in other circumstances by other writers uh, from an, a more of an occultist perception. I'm not saying that Garner is, is, is the same as Florence Farr or, or whatever, but the universality possibly of the experience is what I'm interested in um, and in what, you know, what he found and experienced in those moments of, uh, of extremity, really. Um, bring us back to questions about so you know what is it to be human and what is time and what is space and, and where do we go kind of thing 
Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of the podcast. I hope you're enjoying it so far. I have a favour to ask, if that's okay. Once the episode is finished, if you can leave a rating, a short review, and maybe even share it on social media, I'd be very grateful. They're all brilliant ways to promote some other sphere, to help people like yourself find it and increase listenership. If you would like to get in touch by email, I would love to hear from you with feedback or ideas for future topics and guests. The address is someothersphere at gmail.com. Thank you again, and now, back to the episode. All those questions uh, are definitely something that I think are aided by by, by reading his stories. They, they really get you thinking about those sorts of things. And like we were talking about a little while ago, he's, he's very much connected to Elderly Edge, where he where his family lived for a long time and the legend there of the the wizard of Alderley edge there's a there's a family yeah. connection to there too in terms of there's a i think there's a carving on the cliffs outside the village that that is yes one, one of his and yeah that one of his ancestors made and and that legend of the wizard is is a big part of uh weird stone of brisingaman and and those books um uh, yes it yeah sorry go so, ahead sorry <laughs> no i was going to say yes i mean that the story of Alderley, the legend of Alderley, is is where it all starts um it, it kind of kicks it off uh this 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 folk story of a band of uh, a band of knights and their king lying under sleeping under the hill and um they, you know, in England's extremity, it, when all else is lost, they will arise and uh, and kind of lead um, lead the army into battle and uh, drive the enemy into the sea. Uh, and their their guardian, their steward, who's been ta- has been interpreted to be um, to be um, Merlin. Uh, I think in one of the earliest um, written down versions of this uh, of this legend from the um, early 19th century, I think it's about 1805, there is a, a poem called The Iron Gate. And the, the, the characters in it are not mentioned as, as uh, King Arthur and uh, Merlin and so on. But, you know, it's, it, that's a, certainly a, a hero myth that's waiting to be joined together in the public imagination, possibly. Um, and uh, it, it's a very evocative story that, that there is this, um, there, this magical place under Alderley Edge, which is a sort of natural outcrop uh, in the Cheshire landscape, um, a, a sort of a long hill, really. Um, and it plays to so much about the importance of land, the sanctity of land, the, the, the fact that the land responds to those who tend it and watch it, that uh, and, and work it in the sense of kind of uh, working it ritually walking it ritually defining its boundaries through being there through interactions with natural features and with rocks and with holy pools and so on and there's many different legends and things um, that emerge from this kind of sense of 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 luminosity and sacred land uh, in in britain and in alderley itself i think you know it really 
beds in this idea of the supernatural and um, the sort of special nature of the place, which I have to say, having only very recently moved to an area, you know, we live half an hour away from it now. And um, the very first time I went there, I thought, heavens, uh, you know, this is, it does have something quite indefinably special about it. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to ways of understanding that for myself. But, uh, you know, Garner himself has said that he he inhabits a mythic landscape, which he does in the sense of, you know, living in um, in his in his uh, old medieval uh, half timbered house, uh, Toad Hall, which is just very short uh, across the valley, as it were, across the railway tracks from Jodrell Bank, and it's on top of uh, a sort of Bronze Age burial mound. And he's there's you know obviously he is in the landscape, he is in an, an area of, of great myth, but he also inhabits it himself. You know it is part of him, and he has spoken in the past about you know having made some kind of you know sort of commitment. The lands he becomes one with the land and it with him there seems i mean i'm i'm also you kind of really interested in the work of mary butts and she is i said one of the other women i'm i'm looking at in my um in my thesis and she had a kind of uh, spiritual relationship with the land and dorset herself and she was uh, born in 1890 so she's sort of you know good generation and a bit uh, uh, older than than Ghana. um but she said that her family she, she sensed a mystic link a magical mystical link between her family and the land and she thought that her family she this famous kind of quote of her saying they had an ability to live in two worlds at once or in time and out of it and even in a further dimension of time and she is very much concerned with this kind of um bargain that you make with the land if you live there for generations this sort of stewardship and so on and there's a a, a lot of um a lot of uh, critics and and uh, scholars who who look at the kind of landscape and um uh kind of eco criticism and things now on, on one uh, one person's uh, comment that really jumped out at me a few years ago that I thought, oh, this really kind of brings these two streams together, both Dorset and Alderley. Um, a critic called Geoffrey Mathis McCarthy, and and he he makes a define of, of of dwelling families and people dwelling on the land, and not just living there, but actually over time, there's a long term kind of interweaving of of, of the landscape and of memory. Um, and um, ancestry and deep kind of uh, ritualistic uh, association with the land um, and with death. And so the long, these long established families um, having this kind of almost spiritual uh, link with the land in which they live or become associated with is very much something that one finds, I think, in, in Ghana. And, and he sort of hinted at, at so much himself, because he has this uh, he has this notion of uh, stewardship, of looking after the land just because, you know, that's what he says. I, I have to do this just because, you know. Um, there's a sense in a lot of his uh, his work that if we don't do these things, then, you know, some unknown kind of unstated uh, disaster or, or, or 
tragedy will occur. You know, the the Cadellin has to look after the knights uh, because otherwise, you know, the magic won't work, and 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 at some point, Alderley and England will fall to the kind of you know the forces of of darkness and and evil in the novel personified as as Nastrond and uh, uh, the Mar- the Morrigan. But um, I think that it kind of uh, it also gives the uh, the, the idea that. He is also creating, and, and several of Garner's characters do this, like Colin um, later on in, in the mature, um, the mature Colin, the older one, uh, in Boneland, where he feels he has to walk the boundaries of the land, of old, of the edge and, and, and his area in order to keep defining it and to keep it kind of, you know, active um, and 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 it kind of almost walking it into existence, if if you will. So there's a there's a great there's a great deal of um, of interesting things going on, even in the very first books. I think that we can look at when we go back to Garner's work, and this this notion of of well, what is land? Um, and you know, the, for, whereas Mary Butts was talking about ownership and, and and living in the land from a perspective of being um, part of the English gentry, you know, the upper middle classes. Garner, of course, is talking about his own family who are artisans and uh, sort of the working class, the rural working class, if you will, stonemasons and, and uh, carpenters and, um, you know, those who work with their hands and the whole culture of, of the mines in, um, in, in, uh, in Cheshire as well. And in his work, I think we really have the sense of, you know, these people who work with their hands and work with the land directly, let's put the focus on them and let's... Um, you know, understand or let's show the the link that that these families have with the land, which is just as um, important, just as 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 connected, and just as kind of you know open to sanctity and and the and the numinous as any other kind of more uh, kind of more, more privileged uh, uh, members of society. So for Mary Butt, she might have been talking about, you know, the land is for people like us. Well, Alan Garner's saying, yeah, well, the land is for the rest of us. You know, we 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 yeah. all have something uh, that we can contribute to this. Hmm. And I, I remember from one of the films I watched that Alan Garner was in, where he talks about how you know, the the connection that he has with with elderly isn't isn't unique to to there it could be anywhere and mm. and in, in, in that same film he he talks about his sort of initial writing process about asking himself like, what if the legends around where around where he lives are, are true and there's a real sense of of re-enchanting the landscape around him that that's something i, I get from, from i feel like i get a sense of in, in his work and that's, that seems like an important way to look at the, the supernatural in general, take, taking his work and applying it to a, a, a broader appreciation of, of the sorts of things that we would call supernatural phenomena in the, in the real world. 
Yes. Oh, well, I, I think the, the sort of re-enchantment of, of the landscape and the re-enchantment of society is really part of this kind of modernist project that uh, of occultism that I'm engaged in. Um, anyway, because it does present us with a very positive and a very kind of creative response to the challenges of society and um, the, the traumas of the kind of 20th century world after the First World War, after the Second World War, you know, and, and into the 21st century, the, the, all the horrors that we're living with and the fast changes and so on. The re-enchanting of that nature, you know, the helps us to kind of avoid going into this kind of mindset of uh, oh well we have to tear everything down or uh, you know it's it's all about it's all about power it's all about um negativity and and i think there's kind of you know if we go too far down that line in my opinion i think we end up with a very kind of negative and depressing and kind of um disempowering um effect on us all whereas when we go with the enchanted and we're looking for the kind of the um the the, the sanctity the numinous the strangeness uh of of life the supernatural elements of um of these stories and and that we can actually directly experience you know and, and the, these uh these tales of ghosts and so on that, that that one encounters in various places you know it, it shows us that actually life is much more uh, complicated and beautiful in various different ways but also um, I think it gives us a, a opens a door to being much more positive about uh, a, about things and saying well we can really explore this where do we go if we if we you know go to the edge of the ceiling and we enter into this other world and it seems to be about self-empowerment or it seems to be about showing us new and different things what is it if we have this sense of responsibility for the land in which we occupy because we've entered into a kind of a, a, a personal bargain or a pact or a you know just an agreement or just a, a an acting as if we have with um sort of spirits of the land who in commonality to kind of uh protect and to uphold and to develop um a sense of responsibility for it will that help us to kind of reinvent and, and the re-enchantment project to really kind of engage with much more um, creative things to uplift us as humans, really, and to enter uh, expand our kind of uh, um, our understanding. Um, and of course, I mean, you know, on the other side, of this, on the other side of all of this, supernatural stories and ghost stories and, and stories about the land, they are intrinsically interesting and exciting and, and uh, you know, really quite um, uh, challenging in a good way, aren't they? You know, we, we enjoy them too. I think that gives much more of a kind of... Uh, uh, a, a positive kind of uh, of spin, if you will, to to uh, some of these uh, these things. I think it helps us to see that perhaps you know we have a different place in um, in in the universe. Maybe we have a different place, and a lot of Garner's work is about finding that place. You know, he himself is uh, committed to finding his place, knowing his place. Um, one can talk about knowing your place in terms of, you know, society structure, the working class, all of those things, but also it's, yeah, I'm identified with my place. I know it. I feel, I feel right here. It fits me like a glove. I fit it. So therefore I'm going to help it and it will help me. And, um, 
you know, these these I think are concepts which which come out very clearly from from his work. Yeah, and um, one thing I picked up on, I think, in in his writing is that his early works like Weird Stone and The Moon of Gomrath and and Elidor. Uh, in in those stories, the main characters that the that the reader sort of identifies with have very much become part of the story, and they 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 become involved in a in a in a story um, that's sort of active in the here and now. Whereas for the owl service, that seems to be something where the people involved are repeating something that happened. A really long time ago, like it's like this, it's like this cycle. Perhaps going back to what you're saying about his interest in spirals and things like that. Um, so the characters in the owl service are seem to be repeating this ancient Welsh legend of of betrayal and death and and murder. Um, do we know much about what sort of inspired Alan Garner to write that story? Yeah, it, it's uh, it's um, it's really interesting. Really, I think it's this is uh, my sense of of him encountering it is really he was waiting for the, the its time had come, you know, because Garner was really interested in the Welsh language, and um, from you know he he went to Oxford. Uh, um, he he didn't complete his his degree, but because he left in order to start writing, um, that was his main imperative, if you will. Um, but around that time, you know, he was he's written about how he was uh, taught Latin and Greek and and all of these as uh, sort of his the cultural kind of imports that that, that kind of shaped western uh, uh academic um culture for, for years forever and, and of course into our wider sort of culture and literature as well but when he discovered um welsh and he encountered the book the 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 myth cycle the mabinogion he 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 felt like it was almost like a homecoming and he says well you know he was a bit miffed really that he had been excluded from learning all of this which he saw as his own um his own myth cycle if you will um from uh from from britain with all these marvelous ancient stories and the language itself being so important and um he he uh, sort of learnt Welsh and uh, in order to to enjoy the stories even more. I mean, again, speaking personally with a with a Welsh father, the Mabinogion was something that we were quite relatively familiar with at home um, and having it as a sort of you know this is important you've got the stories of King Arthur in here you've got stories of, of, of Celtic myths of ancestors from a different side of, of 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 kind of your your family if you will and you've got these other uh, mysterious creatures and really interesting kind of uh, presentations of of strange mythical creatures which are are very different very primal very raw very elemental in 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 many ways and i think well what happened for garner was this combination of his early love of the the stories and the language and then he um and met through, um, I think it was his, his mother-in-law. She had a, a, a series of, uh, she had a, um, she had a dinner service which had this pattern on it, this abstract pattern. And the family, the Garner family, had for a long time, as well I should say, gone on holiday, uh, and they they went to um, 
they went to a house in uh, North Wales, in, in the country, in a valley. And then he found out about this, this dinner service and, and his mother-in-law showed that the um, pattern of abstract flowers could be manipulated by tracing and reassessing re it to become an owl. And um, the story from the Mabinogion of Bladuas, the lady created out of flowers for Flughlor Givers um, and um, her dalliance with her lover, Grono Pedro, which resulted in the death of, of uh, both of them and her being turned by the uh, magician Gwydion into an owl as, as eternal punishment. This and the the image of the, the owl made out of flowers all kind of coalesced, I think, and that's what gave him the sort of artistic energy, if you will, to start creating this story. And with his interest in cycles of time, with the way um, myth re uh, is, is reinterpreted or re relived and re-experienced through generations that had already started forming with the tale of Alderley and with the uh, Celtic elements within the story of Elidor. I think this then presented itself in what was really um, you know, a high point of his, uh, of his artistic uh, creation in, in 1967. Um, and the story of the love and betrayal and death and um, class uh, differences and antagonisms and magic in this really claustrophobic but very small setting of a of a kind of country house in um, in a Welsh valley in the middle of a really hot summer is uh, an absolute kind of, it was, it was one of his masterpieces, that's for sure. But it's again, incredibly um, compelling story because it played out initially through a kind of romance or, or relationships, shifting relationships of three teenagers and their respective parents around the edges, if you will. Mm, yeah, I mean, the idea that, the main characters are repeating or act, acting on uh, an, a story that's sort of bound to that location is is really interesting. And it when when I think about that, you know, I, I think about all the all the accounts that get sent into fourteen times when they say it happened to me, and all the weird encounters people have when they're in their house or out in the countryside, and there seems to be a I don't know. Sometimes it feels like humans, ourselves, in some way, we we can either intentionally or often unintentionally sort of reify these these stories that are in the landscape somehow. I'd been, I'm not sure if if I'm explaining that very well, but it feels like like I, I'm not I'm not a huge fan of the of the are you a believer or are you a skeptic when it comes to ghosts, oh, gosh, ghosts no, or UFOs. Oh. Or I I don't like that at all. I'm I think it's much. It's not a helpful way to look at the at the phenomenon, but but I definitely get the sense from you know, from reading Alan Garner's work and someone else like like Robert Holdstock as well with Mythico Wood. Which oh yes, I, I love that. Yes. I love oh, those books so much. Yeah. Um, I've just I've just picked up Lavondis again. Uh, funnily enough. Uh, yesterday to start rereading it for probably about the third time. Yeah, very much an, an, an author uh, of similar 
in, in touches on similar ground to, to Ghana, isn't it? I think I think you're so right about it, though. I think you're on to you know this is this is kind of where in the same sort of space that 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 I am in in so far as we do have individuals have I have had curious experiences I'm sure you have I know friends who have had very strange experiences in landscapes and um, you know encounters with with ghosts and with other uh, what as I call non-human intelligences Um, and UFOs I've seen those and and, and all that kind of thing and I think this does uh, it does allow us to kind of get a sense of as I say that the the very strange uh, outside ourselves but the idea that through ourselves these wild stories or whatever or these wild events suddenly live again is a very intriguing one I think and a very compelling notion so you know if, if, if you're in a situation where uh, you know things once happened and it's the power in the land or it's the power of some kind of butting up with a kind of different order of reality. People talk about portals and things all the time, don't they? But, you know, if you're in a place where things have happened that have been odd over many t- many years, you know, is it, how does that actually affect our own behaviour? How does our behaviour affect places uh, in, in those sort of moments? I think these are very intriguing, intriguing ideas. And I think well, there's a, there is a a lot of similarity points of contact and um, uh, intriguing kind of ideas about stories which we, we're told. This is one of the things for myself where I'm talking about the intersection of literature and the occult and the counterculture and, and uh, underground and so forth. We have had for many, many years these stories of anomalous phenomena, of strange um, interactions with various things, with with, with spirits, with, with ghosts, with, um, you know, fairies and so on. And now we're seeing a lot of, of common... Um, uh, kind of common points of contact between these and sort of you know UFOs uh, encounters and people who have had experiences but then I can also look back in literature and you can see interactions where people like W.B. Yeats for example have written about very strange um, very strange experiences that they have had or, or members of the Golden Dawn who have talked about meeting um, you know their secret chiefs or their spirit guides and people like this and the sort of experiences which they're having and, and relating are heard again in, in folktales, are heard again in UFO encounters, are heard again in news reports, are heard again in things like, you know, people like myself and yourself sitting down saying, oh God, yeah, you know, I saw a ghost on a stair or I saw a creature from a UFO and, and all this kind of thing. Uh, it's co- It's sort of popular culture to an extent, but there's another story that's going on underneath it. And this is one of the things which I find so very, very interesting. Um, at the moment and it is now being looked at much more by you know through various academic lenses as well which helps me enormously because I can sit around reading books like that and uh, count it as research which is rather lovely. Yeah definitely so for anybody who might not have read uh, a work of Alan Garner is is there one you would suggest starting with? Well I do I'm 
I, I recommend all of them. The owl service is, <laughs> is, is brilliant because it is such a, a kind of, you know, it's a concentrated story and um, you, you can certainly enjoy it as a story of, you know, uh, a, a family story or a, a kind of romance, but not a romance story um, for, for teenagers and so on. You can read it as a ghost story. You can read it as something really quite uncanny and strange. You can relate to it in terms of, you know, uh, basically class differences and intergenerational gaps in a, in a Welsh valley in the 1960s, if you, if you want to, because all of those elements are there. And it's a very satisfying story. And and what is so brilliant about the Owl Service, I've spoken about the Mabinogion and so on. It's a marvellous signposter of a story back to the original myth, back to some of those other kind of um, uh, old stories and finding your own way into other things from it. It's, it's, it's a really excellent uh, story. You don't have to know the, the Mabinogion to, to, to read it. You really don't have to have any understanding of medieval Welsh whatsoever, which is a, a joy, um, because Ghana sets out the story you need to glean from the myth actually in the, in the sort of, uh, the mouth of of, of Alison, the, the main female character who who you know embodies the Bloodwood spirit in in the book. But you know if you if you wish to engage further and gain more of the richness, then the Owl Service certainly leads you into some very interesting directions. I as I go back to Elidor, I love that one. It is one of his. Um, it is one of his books that is he's spoken himself as the. A sort of one where um, it, it's it's quite it's it's quite depressing. It's depressed. He was going through a difficult period himself in terms of uh, his own um, kind of uh, mental health and so on at the time, which he's written about extensively. Um, and uh, there, yes, certainly there is this kind of negativity about it. One of the things though that I like from what we're talking about here about the strangeness and the using of odd things is I love the way that Garner just uses these uh, examples of um, uh, using things like the seance and using the the whole kind of nature of also bringing in. Um, kind of quantum physics and uh you know how things uh spooky action at a distance and all of these sort of concepts and and he uses it in a way that's totally uh totally kind of um credible within the plot the children who have um encountered have, have gone into this other world of elidor through the um through playing the kick in a football through an abandoned church in the middle of a kind of demolition site in in uh, manchester in the early 1960s which was undergoing a huge amount of slum clearance and redevelopment after being bombed in the war and so on uh, they they leave all that negative wasteland behind and go into another negative wasteland really but they go into this other dimension into the world of, of elidor where they through various ways I won't go into now, um, they they are given the task of being stewards and guardians of the four kind of uh, hallows of, of, of Elidor, the four, the four sort of uh, sacred um, objects, the, the, um, the spear, the, uh, the cup, the um, the, the uh, sword and, um, and the, and the um, plate. And um, they you know these objects 
when they're seen in their their proper uh, proper shape in in Elidor, when they come back into our world, they just become rubbish from a from a a building site. You know, there's this kind of disruption in expectations and these poor kids they've got to they've got to lug these things all throughout through Manchester as they are then trying to um, protect them from the forces from Elidor who are trying to break in and there are some fantastic real set pieces of of of, of ghostly quite disturbing almost horror um, well, in the kind of um, M.R. James uh, mold, really, about where Roland, the the young, uh, the youngest member of the of the family, who is is the most, uh, you know, charged with with interacting with Elidor, he he has this incredibly ghostly and frightening experience where he's in the attic of their old house, and suddenly, you know, the whole house is full of this mysterious static electricity. And he goes into the attic room to retrieve the treasures of Elidor, which have been hidden away in a cupboard or under the eaves of the, the attic. And he suddenly has this unbelievable experience when he starts looking at the wall and he sees the two figures emerging like shadows on the wall. And honestly, if you read that passage under the right circumstances, preferably if you're about eight under the bed, you know, under the bed covers, it will make your hair stand on end. And it's not just static electricity that does it. Uh, it's, it's a really <laughs> interesting one. And um, there there are, uh, as I say, the whole series when the, the, the kind of climax of the novel, really, the children go to a party, a New Year's party. And um, at the end of the, the party where they've had all sorts of, you know, dancing and parcel parcel and goodness knows what typical 1960s party um they start the the daughter of the house says uh, mommy can we have a can we do a seance like you and uh, your friends did at the dinner party last week and you know in another sort of novel you'd expect someone you know auntie someone to leap up with a waving a bible and saying absolutely not um let's let's play uh, pass parcel again or something but in ghana it's yes of course let's get out the planchette that mummy that grandma had and uh, so they have this seance and during this um this period this kind of interaction with these forces outside of their immediate control suddenly the mysterious uh, figure of a unicorn comes through and, and is drawn out on the paper by this planchette through the, through the you know, the, a little disc with a, a pencil in it on, on wheels that everyone puts their hand on to make work. And the, the, the unicorn, uh, Fintorn, is the one creature whose song will restore the ailing um, planet of uh, a land of, of Elidor to back to full health. And um, through through this, reaching it through the seance period, it uh, brings the unicorn through as well. So we have the eruption of this fantastical beast from folklore, from medieval legend, from um, the imagination and from a different world comes into basically the uh, allotments at the bottom of the uh, at the bottom of the road, possibly in Alderley Edge, possibly somewhere else in South Manchester. You know, it it, it can be anywhere. Uh, it could be in your town. I mean, this is the universality of uh, of of uh, the power of Garner's fiction. Of course, it it may be set in Alderley Edge, but it's for all all times, all all, all places. So those for for sheer kind of 
uh, spookiness that was unlike anything else that was being written at the time, I suggest. Elidor is, is really up there as, as a book that, that repays, um, repays a lot of close attention. Um, I'd be very interested to hear what other people think about the ending of that book, about which I shall say nothing, um, because it is, uh, you know, as I say, this this book is it, it it's not it's not what you expect. Garner's Garner's fiction isn't always what you what you expect. Uh, so, so I would recommend that one from the young. Um, the other one that I I particularly like is Thursbitch. Uh, which is um, more his more mature ones, and that's a really interesting, uh, a really interesting story, in, which interweaves many different dimensions of time. It's stories going, uh, you know, the sort of um, all going on simultaneously, which is one of Garner's uh, Garner's great uh, great things about the universality, the, you know, the unity of time, and the way in which he he puts this across. So in Thursbitch, you know, you have the story of uh, of John Jenkins, the the Jagger, the the, the Pacman, the the wandering traveller who who goes along the Silk Road, and um, takes his takes his pack back to um, uh, the village outside um, Macclesfield in um, it, back in the sort of 18th century, very rural. There's a place before industrialization really was just coming in and that's one of the themes in the book and it also links back to a creation that he, that Garner has of a kind of Dionysic, Dionysic um, Mithraic kind of uh, relict religion amongst the people um, of, of the area really very interesting um, recreation of what that could possibly have been and we have the use of entheogens you know drugs and magic mushrooms and things within the whole uh, uh, the, the, the whole kind of uh, religion that, that is then the bull the holy sacred animal um, and how the the characters become linked with the animals with it with the landscape and the story of um, the, the local folk story of the um, man who disappeared and in the snowstorm, found dead in the snowstorm, and next to him on the snow was a woman's footprint uh, in a shoe, and nobody knew who that was. And to an extent, Garner puts a supposition, you know, he, he gives us a well, perhaps about that story, perhaps a reading of it. And those stories then is then also linked with a, a couple from the 21st century who are out and then she has got um, some form of uh, motor neurone disease and uh, he is a, 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 a vicar or, or a curate or, or something a, a, in religious orders anyway. And this is about how she's coming to terms with her illness and, the, and, and what happens to her and, and how it leads to her kind of death uh, in in the landscape, but there's what Garner is doing here, as with so many of his his stories, is he's interweaving the fact that at certain times and certain places there's an intersection between the dimensions and the of time and place and people, so that at one point the 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 traveller is seeing and hearing a, a sound of a lone voice, and it's the 20th century man 
who is actually in, in his time stream out walking along the the, the hills and, and and shouting out something and uh, they try to sort of they they both see each other from different times and different places and they try to sort of you know just wave to each other or whatever and there's this sense that something very strange can happen in some places where maybe we can see time across time or we do uh, kind of relive these we do relive these uh, experiences, uh, <clears throat> experienced by others. Um, and it kind of shows us a sort of slice through the spiral of time, if you like, um, so that we can see all things at the same, in the same moment, which, you know, is, is a really, uh, a really thought provoking idea. And uh, I think it's one of those, uh, it's one of the things which Garner does so very well, this whole inquiry into the nature of time and uh, and death and what happens afterwards, which he started off as a boy in that bed looking at the ceiling. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Sue, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. My my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. This, oh, just as we start start getting into our stride, we could talk for ages. I know it's been a, it's been a joy. Thank you so much, Rick. It's been great being with you. If people want to find out more about yourself and your work, how best do they do that? Uh, well, I have my website, which is sueterryacademic.com, and there's various ways there of uh, you can sign up for a newsletter from me, which I have to say doesn't come out very often. So I'm, I, I don't trouble people's inboxes and block it up very much. Um, and, uh, you know, you can certainly get in touch uh, through through the website and uh, have a chat if you like. I'd really, really appreciate that. I do also run Owl House seminars through there. Um, I uh, will be run, launching a new uh, round of those uh, after Christmas, uh, but I'm hoping to pop up again and do a little bits and pieces uh, unexpectedly every now and then. But I've been running a series of seminars and talks um, all through 2023. Uh, and we've covered a lot of work on a lot of Alan Garner's uh, work. And uh, we've also looked at um, Mary Butts, Alistair Crowley's uh, fiction, Moonchild. We looked at Dennis Wheatley. We look at a lot of different literature and the weird things. Uh, we looked at, we had a marvelous day um, encountering the weird in, um, in cities. Uh, so we were sort of delving very deeply into some of these interdimensional portals and strange occurrences that we were just talking about just now um, and looking at the stories and the work of people like uh, Ian Sinclair and Peter Aykroyd and, and others who, who engage with the notions of uh, dimensions of time and, and the ghostly passageways and strange encounters. Uh, oh my goodness me, some of the people who come to that have had some very weird and very odd things. And I hope they themselves will write about them one day because, uh, gosh, there's a lot of stories out there that people can tell. Um, and they are much more weird than we can imagine, I think, which is great. Mm, definitely. Well, I'll put the information about your website in the show notes. Thank you very much, Rick. Bye now. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Sue. If you haven't yet read any of Alan Garner's books, I hope now you might be more inclined to. You certainly won't be disappointed. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, Sue is writing a book about him. 
So definitely check out her website for updates on that and the talks and courses that she has planned. Please also consider rating this episode wherever you listen and sharing it on social media as it really helps some other sphere to grow and find new listeners. You can follow some other sphere on X, formerly known as Twitter, Blue Sky and Mastodon and subscribe on most of the well-known podcast platforms. You can also support the upkeep of the podcast with a donation via Ko-fi. Details on how to do that are in the show notes. If you'd like to email me here at SphereHQ, the address is someothersphere at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you. Until next time, be safe and well, and I hope you'll join me again soon for another episode of Some Other Sphere.